on this uh, Independence Day Eve. I'm departing from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Gospel of Mark. How could I forget? We've been in it now for over a year, um, and we will continue plowing through that, as that is my normal fashion in teaching the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative Word of God. Today, like I said, is a departure from that. Uh, I don't know how you'd characterize this sermon. Um, doesn't matter. Here goes. First of all, from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, we read, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? There's a question that I'm kind of going to answer today. Actually, a couple of questions. A few questions. I'm going to answer them sort of. And that is, is this the nation we are, what I just read from Deuteronomy, does that characterize the nation that we are or the nation that we should be? Let's look at the rest of where that verse comes from instead of just ripping it out of its immediate context. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. That's an idol. For all the men who follow Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I've taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes, and they will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God, whenever we call upon him. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as the whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and give your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from, all, from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons." When this nation was in the throes of trying to decide what their relationship should be like with the nation of Britain, of which they were all essentially citizens of, but things were going badly, if you know any history at all, and so they were coming to the grips of, should we dare, as basically farmers, take up the sword against the most powerful, most technologically complex and savvy military in the whole world. What chance would we possibly stand? And yet the core elements of who we are and who we believe we are to be before God are being impeded such that they are becoming intolerable. It was vitally important in that day that they have unanimity amongst the 13 colonies. Anything less than that, for obvious reasons, was going to only play against them. And sure, the politicking that goes on today and the, the back 
you know, the back hall discussions and conversations of trying to get everybody on board were no different than they are today. Perhaps a little more civil, but only in that particular instance. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. And things were going such that they basically had all but three colonies that they could be a certain would vote for independence. And those colonies were New York and there be no dissenting votes. Then their, their uh, representative was free to vote for independence. The problem is New York was facing 150 battleships docked or uh, moored right off the shore of their homes. They figured they were signing a death warrant, and they probably were. So they were adamant that they could not vote for it. So now they're in a pickle. And then Pennsylvania, which had three representatives there, Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Franklin, and a third candidate named Dickinson, John Dickinson, I think. Being a man of principle, he simply could not vote with his colleagues for Pennsylvania to vote, and that was a problem. That if he were to simply absent himself on the day of the vote, that he would not have to vote against his conscience. You see this played out in the last segment that we'll see at the end of this time when they actually vote. New York, on the other hand, also came to realize that while they could not vote yes, cleverly designed a way to vote not no. And you'll see how that plays out. Ah, yes, there's nothing new under the sun. This is from the HBO series John Adams, overseen in its production by David McCulloch, the historian who wrote the book John Adams, as well as 1776 and a whole host of other. He is one of the finest historians living today. And the HBO production is the finest thing I have ever seen done, produced out of how meticulously and rigorously accurate by my own personal studies, which have been for many years now and are ongoing concerning the origins of our nation. Let's watch. As our battle, the others may yet come around. Pennsylvania and New York are too self-interested, too Tory. And Mr. Dickinson is too unbending and too effective. Oh, most effective, Mr. Adams, most effective. Rutledge. Well, good luck to you, sir. Congress will take into consideration the resolution concerning independence. Mr. Dickinson. Gentlemen. The consequences involved in the motion now lying before us are of such magnitude that I tremble at the oppressive honor of sharing in its determination. My conduct this day, I expect, will give the finishing blow to my once great and now much diminished popularity. Yet I had rather forfeit popularity forever than vote away the blood and happiness of my countrymen 
Independence will not strengthen us by one man, nor by the least supply. But it may expose our soldiers to additional cruelties and outrages. The full fury of British wrath will be unleashed. Indians will be loosed on the frontier. Negroes will rise up to slaughter us. New York may well be destroyed by their own admission. The advocates of separation say foreign assistance will be necessary. At what cost? Let us imagine a war without victors. When the guns fall silent, many will have bled and sacrificed only to have exchanged the light yoke of Great Britain for the heavy dominion of an alien power. Here, here. Some have argued that America will become one great commonwealth. But what is to keep 13 unwieldy colonies from splitting asunder? I have a strong impression in my mind that this will take place. Now, gentlemen, to escape the protection of Great Britain by declaring independence unprepared as we are would be to brave the storm in a skiff made of paper. recognizes Mr. Adams of Massachusetts. Objects of the most stupendous magnitude. Measures which will affect the lives of millions, born and unborn, are now before us. We must expect a great expense of blood to obtain them. But we must always remember that a free constitution of civil government cannot be purchased at too dear a rate as there is nothing on this side of Jerusalem of greater importance to mankind. My will spoken with great ingenuity and eloquence. He has given you a grim prognostication of our national future, but where he foresees apocalypse, I see hope. I see a new nation ready to take its place in the world. Not an empire, but a republic and a republic of laws, not men. 
Gentlemen, we are in the very midst of revolution. The most complete, unexpected, and remarkable of any in the history of the world. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves and their children. I am not without apprehensions, gentlemen. But the end we have in sight is more than worth all the means. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. My judgment approves this measure, and my whole heart is in it. All that I have, all that I am, and all that I hope in this life, I am now ready to stake upon it. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. question this morning that I will attempt to answer sort of is was was past tense at the founding of our nation was America a Christian nation now you might wonder what is my source my source <laughs> like it or not is me <laughs> what I mean by that is this isn't from a book I grabbed read through it, saw what the author was saying, and there, there it is. There it's answered for me. It was not from David Barton and the Wall Builders. It's been from my many years long and is continuing to go on because I thought, even though I have had answers for myself satisfied, there's something about the gripping sacrifice of those men and women and children in that day that I just keep wanting to apprise myself of to sort of keep my own balance in touch with the reality of our day. Was America a Christian nation? Well, are you ready? It depends on how one would define what it means to be a Christian nation. Does it mean that the Christian faith was the national religion? Well, no, it wasn't. Does it mean that the nation was formed expressly to be a nation where Christianity would rule and reign? No. Does it mean that the nation was founded by Christians on a dream of establishing a land where Christians would worship freely without fear of government intrusion? If that's what we mean by a Christian nation, then yes, it was. Or does it mean that the nation was founded by Christians 
but where people of all religions could worship without fear of government intrusion. And if that's so, then yes, it was. But does it mean that America was distinctly Christian and essentially hostile to other religions? Well, then no. Does it mean that the nation's founders were all Bible-believing Christians themselves, personally and individually, under the lordship of Christ? Then, no. Does being a Christian nation mean that none of the founding fathers were merely blasé or at times maybe even antagonistic toward Christianity? Then, no. So, was America a Christian nation? Depends on how one would define that. Does it mean that the nation's embryonic form of government was routinely informed by the writings of Scripture? If that's what it means to be a Christian nation, then yes, it was. But does it mean that the founding documents of the country, namely the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, were birthed and informed exclusively by the Bible? Not exclusively, so then no. But if it means that those documents and the governing philosophies were informed largely from the Bible, then yes, it was. Or does being a Christian nation mean that that even non-Christians held the Bible in high esteem and saw it usefulness as the informing rule of life? If that's what it means to be a Christian nation, then yes, it was. Or does it mean that the overwhelming cultural understanding of life was from the Bible? Again, yes. So, we're back to, was America a Christian nation? Well, just from what I've said, there are six no's and six yeses. You answer it how you like. Question number two. This one's easier. Is America a Christian nation? Well, that depends on what you mean by that. If you mean, are there Christians living in America? Then, sure. If you mean to the leaders of our country, from local all the way up to the highest level, hold the Bible in the same regard as the founders, then no. If you mean as the informing authority for the heartbeat of the nation, the Bible, then no. If you mean are Christians able to practice their beliefs without government intrusion, then no. Question three. Were the founding fathers, as they are often referred, were they deists, meaning having a a very general belief in a supreme being or deity? Were they atheists or Christ followers? Well, that depends on who you mean when speaking of the Founding Fathers. Oh, we all know names like Ben Franklin, not this one, (laughs) but this one. But who in the world was, for example, William Williams? Name. But if you see a copy of the Declaration and you go way over to the right-hand side and you go all the way down to the very bottom, about one, two, three, or four lines up from the bottom in very, very tight, but who in the world would ever be able to tell you William William, signer of the Declaration? Or who knows Thomas Fitzsimmons, 
signer of the Constitution from Pennsylvania, or David Brearley, the same, only from New Jersey. Founding fathers, to be sure, but who's ever heard of them? Charles Carroll, signer of the Declaration, or Thomas Lynch Jr. from South Carolina, or Philip Livingston from New York, many, many more. So who are we referring to when we say we're the founding fathers, atheists, deists, Christians, fathers, whatever? And then, of course, what about all the men and women who didn't serve in any kind of maybe official capacity, and so they weren't as prominent, but were nevertheless an absolutely integral part of the newly forming country? Is or was America a Christian nation? Well, answer the question if it were posed differently. Is or was America at least a biblically informed nation? To that, I would give an unequivocal Yes. You see, the Bible at the time of the founding of our country, the Bible was an assumption. What do I mean by that? I mean that it was, it was just so familiar to everyone in every walk of life, regardless of intellect, intelligence, party affiliation, political views, or anything else. The Bible was just the, the understood assumption. And so God talk, as I'll just call it, you know, talking about God and in, in integrating uh, biblical principles and everything else just as a matter of course. God talk, originating from the Bible, permeated the everyday routines of life. And it permeated a biblically informed worldview, which was the default philosophy of the day, by virtually, as I said, everyone. Let me demonstrate this. And what I mean by using an extreme example of somebody who clearly was not a Christian and clearly was not even a respecter of people who had any kind of faith. His name is Thomas Paine. You should know that name. He wrote Common Sense. He wrote Age of Reason. He was indeed a founding father. And he was perhaps the most prominent founding father that I can think of in many years of study in the origins of our country who was neither a classic deist nor was he a biblical enthusiast. And in spite of that, speaking of the origin and the design of government in general, this is what Thomas Paine noted. This is from his own hand. Some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them, whereas they are not only different, but they have different origins. Society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections, the latter negatively by restraining our vices." Because of the language of the day and the long sentences and, and everything, this is, I understand this is a little hard to understand. I'll simplify it when we get to the end of it. The one encourages intercourse. The other creates distinctions. The first is a patron. The last, a punisher. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one, for it is an intolerable one for when we suffer or are exposed to the same miseries by a government which we might expect in a country without government, our calamity is heightened by reflecting that we furnish the means by which we suffer. Government, like a dress, is the badge of lost innocence. What a great sentence. For were the impulses of conscience clear, uniform, and irresistibly obeyed, men would need no other lawgiver. 
But that not being the case, he finds it necessary to surrender up part of his property to furnish means for the protection of the rest. Now that is from his book, Common Sense. Paine's thoughts, here's the the point. His thoughts expressed there, though coarsely, are basically a paraphrase of Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 13 of the Bible about the why and the necessity of government. But even more specifically, for many pages then, Paine is critical of the notion of a government by hereditary monarchy. That is, you know, where the king just becomes the king by virtue of being the son of the former king, and on it goes through generations. Nobody ever has, ever has any say in the matter. And in his critique of the problems of a hereditary monarchy with such an arrangement, even he cites biblical examples at length from the lives of Gideon and Samuel and Saul, just to name a few. And remember now, too, that Thomas Paine was an ardent critic, as I said, of Christianity. And so he published or was going to publish another treatise called The Age of Reason, being very critical of people who had any faith at all. But somebody stepped in, somebody who was a good friend of his for many years by the name of Benjamin Franklin. Now, if you are historically astute, you'd say, wait, what? Franklin? I mean, Franklin wasn't to be known as uh, the most devout individual in the world either, which he wasn't. But you'll understand why I'm using Ben Franklin here in this example later on. Ben Franklin implored, begged his friend Thomas Paine not to go forth with his plan to publish The Age of Reason because it was so derogatory toward faith and people of faith. And Paine obliged him and did not publish it for seven years until he was virtually on his deathbed when he released it. Thomas Paine, the the ardent doubter, continues again from his hand. Where, says some, is the king of America? Well, I'll tell you, friend. This is where it gets so confusing with these guys. I'll tell you, friend. He reigns above and doth not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute of Britain. Yet that we may not appear to be defective even in earthly honors. Let a day be solemnly set apart for proclaiming the charter. Let it be brought forth, placed on the divine law, the word of God. Let a crown be placed thereon by which the world may know that so far we approve of monarchy that in America the law is king. You see the bubble up here saying, oh, if only our legislators would read that today and understand it, know it, and obey it. For as in absolute governments, the king is law. So in free countries, the law ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. Now, let me really simplify that. No human authority should ever be autonomous making laws by dictate but rather the law of God must be authoritative, ruling even over any and every king. That was Thomas Paine. And he was a pain most of the time. Was, is America a Christian nation? 
Well, God was most certainly at the center of colonial existence. And even when it was not there by intention, as in Thomas Paine's case, it was there by default. You might say it was a common sense unavoidable given. Now, how and why was early America permeated with this this overwhelming common cultural sense of God regardless of your station or position or views and everything else? Well, among many reasons, and there are various, but among many reasons, and maybe the most compelling, is that death was much more a reality, a daily reality than it is today. Do you know I have run across many, relatively speaking, adults since I've been in pastoral ministry who as adults had never even been to a funeral yet. say, well, what's your point? My point is death is not much of a reality today except for when it smacks us, which it does, again, relatively few and far between. Now, consider... This is not what it was like in colonial America. A slight cut, something we don't even give a thought to, could and would lead to an infection that would end up taking the life of the individual. Things like smallpox and scarlet fever and yellow fever and measles. Measles, really? And typhus. The flu, they were all and could all bring upon rapid death scenarios. Consider this, 10% of children, one out of 10 children, would not make it to their first birthday. Think about that in our context today. It gets worse. 30% of everyone born, three out of 10 would not make their 21st birthday. You see, death was commonplace. And then you throw on top of that the fact that they were talking about an agrarian society. You have the whole exposure to animals and death and destruction. And by the way, speaking of the, the whole life expectancy thing, one of my rare quirky habits that uh, Barb really enjoys, <laughs> hey, she pretends, is stopping at graves or graves at cemeteries here in Maine and around New England and especially in historical areas and looking for Revolutionary War patriots. Well, one day a couple of years ago, we were out right, right in Fairfield. There's a little small uh, graveyard. I can't think of the name of it right now. Um, and so we were out there, and sure enough, I found uh, uh, two markers, a mother and a father um, from the Revolutionary War era, and right next to them are five, two, three, four, five little basically blocks, each one with a first initial, I think, and their last name and the date of their demise. That mom and dad lost three of their children within six weeks of each other, if I remember right, and the other two they lost another within another couple of years, I believe. Death was a daily reality then. And like I say, you get up in the morning in an agrarian society You find that your sow had died in a failed attempt to deliver or that the calf was stillborn. And then, of course, even healthy animals you take into the barn, what do you do? You prepare them for market, for sale. You know what that entails? Death. And then, of course, old Bessie 
or nightmare or whatever. The favorite horse gets old and has to be put down. That was a family affair. Death in many forms was part of daily reality. Now, <laughs> forgive me for this. But today, right? Little Farquhar gets up one morning, comes downstairs, and he finds Jonah, his little goldfish, floating belly up in the bowl, right? Mom and or dad comes down, wringing their hands. Oh, how is little Jonah ever going to cope with this horrid event in his life and wondering about the meaning of life and the ultimate God? Really? (laughs) Don't think me insensitive, okay? I have done my fair share of memorial services with my children of their hamsters and their gerbils and their finches and their cockatiels and their little baby bunnies that they invariably seem to find and the little nest of birds and everything else. I get it. But in our day, due to the wonders of medicine and technology and transportation in a profoundly secular world, the reality of and for God isn't nearly isn't nearly what it was 200 years ago. Consequently, as I started out to say, God talk permeated even the skeptics' views and their outlooks and their interactions in what was a very dangerous world. Now, I mentioned Ben Franklin. Not this one, but the other one. Ben Franklin, whose biography, second biography, was finished by Walter Isaacson. It's about that thick. It's an outstandingly well-done book. was an interesting character. I think one of the most interesting that I have. Colonel. I never knew that. He was a field commander in the militia during the French and Indian War. Who knew? Not me. His morals were questionable. That's being generous. He prided himself, though, on not standing in judgment of another's beliefs and practices, which was part of what made him so popular in France, where he was on the A-list of all the galas. But he considered himself a commoner, and he was very much at home with the commoner as much as he was as an ambassador to the royal courts of Britain, who absolutely adored him. Consequently, the outspoken and ill-tempered John Adams, who was very religious, had frequent run-ins with old Ben, seeing him as an immoral, irreverent, and poor representation of America. But he was a masterful statesman who was not, as it seemed, irreligious. But admittedly, he was not classic faith, which... That in and of itself was also very confusing. From Walter Isaacson's Benjamin Franklin and American Life, he writes, Mr. Franklin never really joined a church what elusive. And in my comments, as he grew older in his faith, his faith became a bit more tangible, but still difficult to pin down. And with Franklin would at times come precariously close to orthodoxy and yet never seeming to quite make contact with it. One example, after the war, he wrote his good friend and fellow publisher, William Strahan, and he stated, quote, 
If it had not been for the justice of our cause and the consequent interposition of providence in which we had faith, we must have been ruined. If I had ever been an atheist, I should now have been convinced of the being, capital B, and government of a deity. Interestingly, though, one month before Mr. Franklin would meet the maker face-to-face at the age of 84, Reverend Ezra Stiles, president of Yale University, approached Mr. Franklin trying to once and for all figure him out. He asked him about his faith. Franklin began by restating his basic creed, quote, I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, and that the most acceptable service we render to him is doing good to his other children. But then he was asked point blank by Reverend Stiles whether he believed in Jesus which Mr. Franklin said was the first time in his life that he was ever directly asked. His reply, quote, The system of morals that Jesus provided was the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But on the issue of whether Jesus was divine, he provided a surprisingly candid and right response. Quote, I have some doubts as to his divinity, though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it and think it needless to busy myself with it now when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. (laughs) He was a pragmatist. And so the colonies get together. To make that fated vote, remember there were basically three states hanging in the balance, one depending on what all the others did, one who did not want to violate his conscience and was suggested that he wouldn't be there, and then New York, who was the rotund gentleman, who said he simply could not vote yes. Let's watch the way it plays out. This is historically accurate. Vote. A resolution proposed by Mr. Lee. That these colonies are, and have a right ought to be, free and independent states. And that all political connection between them and the country of Great Britain is, and have a right ought to be, totally dissolved. New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Vote yes. Rhode Island. Rhode Island votes yes. Massachusetts. Massachusetts votes yes. New York. He 
New York has yet to receive new instructions from its constituent assembly. We therefore respectfully abstain. Connecticut. Connecticut votes yes. New Jersey. New Jersey votes yes. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania votes yes. Delaware. Delaware votes yes. Virginia. Virginia votes yes. Maryland. Maryland votes yes. North Carolina. North Carolina votes yes. South Carolina. South Carolina votes yes. Georgia. Georgia votes yes. The vote stands. 12 for independence, none against, with one abstention. The resolution carries. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain un... What's that word there? Unalienable. With certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is in the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. And for the support of 
this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Bless you. God save our American states. God save our American states. Side note there, the license plate of New Hampshire says what? First in freedom. Or is that their state motto? Something like that. That's because they were the first to say yes to independence. You're right, live free or die. Yeah. What was so poignant to me was when the vote carried, there was no celebration. Not even from those who wanted it, there was that sober reality of what they had done. In the history of the world, the government that we have experienced for over 200 years now is unique. And it is tragic what it has become. And knowing what this all says, and knowing the road that we will, at one time or another, sooner or later, will traverse, does not make it any easier, nor does it absolve us from responsibility of doing what God has called us to and continues to call every person to. It may be that we will get a reprieve this coming election year. But I can guarantee this, that if God's church does not massively repent, and the list would be too long to go into as to what ways the church of Jesus Christ needs to repent, and does not get its act together, that reprieve, if at all, will be short-lived once again. We expect godless people to act godlessly. God does not expect his people, who are called by his name, to act the same. Things have escalated quickly in seven years. And I see this every year. I watch this whole series every year. Continue to read. And it breaks my heart, truly, that God has given such opportunity and blessing. And it has been so squandered. Let me have you stand. Dear God in heaven, thank you for the bravery of the men and women who are our predecessors to bring a nation that could be a blessing to you. Lord, the church is not 
the church. The church is made up of we, the people. And so I pray, O God, for that spirit of repentance before you in all ways, in every place where repentance needs to happen. Not to gain a reprise, or a reprieve rather, but to gain, Lord, your favor and to give you what you have always been due. And that is our unswerving, undivided allegiance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.